Well, this morning we are in Galatians chapter 2 again. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to try to wrap this chapter up. Um, it's really bad form to introduce something that you're going to talk about this way, but as I was making preparations and things, I struggled in some respects to find an order that I felt uh, lent itself to our study this morning. And so if there's any disjointedness, know that it's that's on me, um, but the truths of God's Word remain uh, uncompromised. And so while my presentation may slump, the truth of God's Word will never slump. So bear with me. There's two, two main sections remaining in this chapter. First, uh, Paul recounts his interactions with Peter, excuse me, is he recounts his interactions first with uh, while in Jerusalem, and we've read about that as we introduced the the book. Uh, we talked about it in Acts, excuse me, in first the first chapter. Uh, all of that is recorded for us in Acts chapter fifteen, and you can go there. That's where Paul and Barnabas uh, made this this dispute, defended the gospel, and actually went to Jerusalem, not as a means to try and uh, clarify or seek authority but to establish what the truth is. And so uh, th that's in verses 6 through 10. We've talked about that at, to some length. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, not that there isn't perhaps things there. Uh, one thing that I'll point out, uh, for example, in verse 7, um, here Paul is talking about, uh, he said, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision, which is simply representative of the Gentiles, was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, uh, I just want to clarify, there's not two gospels. It's just two audiences, and that's what Paul is saying there. Uh, so we want to be careful uh, that we have a, a good understanding about those kinds of things. But uh, as I said, there's a lot, there's more there that we can unpack. I feel like we've looked at a lot of those things so far, and there's probably not a need to spend a lot of time there. The second part of this chapter recounts, and remember, this is an epistle. This is a letter that Paul is writing to these churches that is designed to be read and understood by them and by us. And so here he recounts, he describes his rebuke of Peter in defense of the gospel. And there, there's some substantial things for us to take away from that. So I want to read verses 11 through 21 as we get going this morning. And then we're going to come back and look at that. As I said, if there's any disjoint in this, that's on me. But here's the Word of God. Let's, let's look at it and get a full sense of what, what we're looking at here. So beginning in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because it was because he was to be blamed, for before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? 
who were we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the God, the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I want to begin this morning by just defining what the word dissimulation or dissembling means. And before we even do that, let's look at the motivation. Here is Peter, one of the apostles. He has authority. He has the same jurisdiction, as it were, as Paul does. And so, in many respects, we have a unique circumstance. We have something that does not necessarily apply, and we'll talk more about this as we progress across the board. But this is Paul, Peter, coming to Antioch, and while he's there, these emissaries, these this group of Jews comes from James. James is sort of the head of the church there in Jerusalem, and he comes and, and he sends this delegation, as it were, and while they're there, Peter changes the way he conducts himself. That's the long and short of what's happening there. And his motivation, he it says here in verse 12, that he was fearing them which were of the circumcision. So here are these Jews from Jerusalem. They come, and Peter is, for whatever reason, fearful of them. He, he is somehow looking to uh, not offend or cause contention or whatever the circumstance may be with them. And that motivates him to change the way that he operates. That's somewhat problematic, as we're going to find. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, Proverbs 29, 25, we find some very clear instruction for you and I as we operate with fear as a motivator. It says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. So here is Peter, and he's trusting in, he's fearful of man. And as a, what we find is that in the midst of all this, because of that motivation, he finds himself ensnared in this bondage that Paul has just spent time describing and defending in Jerusalem. And now we're going to obtain our works by righteousness. We're no longer going to operate in the liberty that we enjoy in Christ. We're going to operate in the legalistic tendencies that are being imposed upon us. And we're going to establish effectively a different method of righteousness, a different method of justification. We'll remember that as we looked at liberty last week, we defined it simply as, uh, I mean, the word itself means the ability to omit. And all that it means in this context, because there are many words that are translated 
liberty in the New Testament. But in the context that we're looking at this morning, the liberty that we enjoy in Christ simply means freedom from righteousness obtained by works. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And bondage, by definition here, is simply works by righteousness. Or excuse me, righteousness by works. Okay, so we define that. Here is Peter, and effectively he's saying by the way that he conducts himself that we've made a mistake. Now, the word dissembling, it means to act hypocritically or to fake, to fake something. That's what it means. So here is Peter. When there's no other Jews around, he eats with the Gentiles. He conducts himself uh, just like they would. He conducts himself in fellowship with them. Yet, when these Jews come, he acts differently. That word hypocrisy, that word hypocrite, uh, if you'll if you'll remember, it is it's a term that actually applies to the theater in Greek, and it means those two faces. And well, all it means is that somebody would play two parts, and they would put a mask on for one, and they would take the mask off or wear a different mask for another. Two faced. This way with these people, this way with these people. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. Now, I want to point out that Peter knows better. Peter knows better. Okay, Peter's sin is not heresy. He's not teaching false doctrine. He's not up there pronouncing. Peter's sin is hypocrisy because he knows better. In Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, if you'll turn there with me, in Acts chapter 10, this is where Peter receives the vision just before he goes to Cornelius. He receives the vision of all the things coming down and, and, and God declare, telling him, you need to eat, and these are all unclean foods, and there's a little bit of discussion between he and the Lord about that. And ultimately, God says, listen, Peter, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. Right? I have intended since the very beginning to save the Gentiles, and now that is about to happen. And in verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, Peter says, and this, this is him speaking, this is him after receiving instruction from the Lord, you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto another, uh, or come unto one of another nation. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of the Jews are separate. We're not going to keep company. We're, this is the law. Paul, Peter is saying, this is what we have been raised with. This is what we have known. This is the standard of righteousness. And if we do this, we're unrighteous. If we engage in fellowship, as it were, with Gentiles, we would be unrighteous. But he goes on and he says, but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Right? There's no distinction. There is no difference. And as we get into Acts chapter 11, we find that there are those of the circumcision, it says, uh, verse 2 of Acts chapter 11, when Peter was come to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised and did eat with them. They confront Peter about this thing that he, he, he fully acknowledges. Listen, that's something we were raised with. That would be wrong. That would be, but God has told us something different. God has clarified and illustrated what he intends with the Gentiles. And he goes through the rest of, or a good chunk of Acts chapter 11, recounting just what we 
would just what happened in Acts chapter 10 and concluding, making defense, as it were, for God's ability and desire to save the Gentiles, to enjoy fellowship with them. But what we find is that Peter, in, in the book of Galatians, when, when Paul is recounting this, now, Paul is only share any Paul doesn't share uh, Peter's response, though I suspect that Peter was probably uh, well receiving of this rebuke, rebuke, this correction. There's no, and I base that on what Peter writes in some of his epistles. He talks about Paul, a beloved brother in the faith. He teaches those things that are hard to understand, but listen, we need a guy like Paul. I mean, that's effectively what he says. So I don't think there's any loss of love between the two as a result of this. And I think that Peter would, I mean, Peter's MO throughout the Gospels is to kind of make mistakes. And so something that we need to understand is that everyone and anyone might make a mistake. Everyone and anyone may fall into something that is something potentially legalistic or may fall into some trend or something uh, some method of trying to obtain righteousness that we ought not to engage in. Anyone can make a mistake, and we need to understand that as believers, it could happen to even us. But what we find is that here in Peter's actions, there is a de facto, just by right of him doing it, endorsement of a false gospel, this false gospel of this works mentality. That those who are looking on, even Barnabas, it says there was, was taken away. He was carried away in this dissimulation. Barnabas, the guy who was with Paul, his traveling companion, his missionary buddy, is carried away in this. That, oh, geez, we've got to maintain righteousness. We have to do all these things. And, oh, God, we've got to engage in this and keep these lines of separation. And No. Peter's hypocrisy, his dissimulation was a de facto endorsement. And we, we understand this, right? We see all kinds of things like this today. That somebody would acknowledge or condone or, or, or whatever it may be, and when we understand that there is some uh, endorsement, even if it's in, not intended, of that thing. Right? We fall prey to it in marketing all the time. Right? You, you, you watch a movie and every vehicle in the movie just happens to be a Ford. Right? It's, it, there's an endorsement there, and we, it may be subtle and we may not even notice it, but the movie is obviously sponsored by, there's some motive for them to promote that. Peter's motive here is fear, and not fear of the Lord fear of men, and as a result, he falls into a snare. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, don't go to Ecclesiastes very often, and it's right there, right after Proverbs, but Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1 says, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. But the apothecary, so we've got some 
ointment, something that smells delightful. I mean, it serves its purpose. It does all of its things. But you get a couple flies in there and they lay eggs and all of a sudden it's full of maggots and it's being corrupted and it stinks. And there's this, this little bit of folly being equated to the flies interacting with that ointment. And ultimately what, what is brought about by that is a, uh, is a misunderstanding. So somebody who is wise and who is honorable, like Peter as an apostle, somebody with jurisdiction and position, as it were, by God ordained to be so, when he makes a mistake, it's, a, it's something that people look at effectively as this endorsement. That there must be some credence to this argument they're making, or Peter wouldn't do this thing. So that little bit of folly that he engages in, that fear of man creates a snare, but that snare doesn't end with him. It leads others down this path. Dissimulation, hypocrisy. Peter's sin was hypocrisy, not heresy. It's not teaching anything wrong. He's defended it in the past. Now, Paul's motivation is given to us in verse 5. It's the same motivation that he went to Jerusalem for. He said that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Right? We want to clarify what the gospel is. And so Peter's motive, excuse me, Paul's motivation in confronting Peter is simply to maintain the truth of the gospel. He sees people that he knows, that he trusts, that he under that he is completely sure understand the gospel, Barnabas, who are being carried away with this. And ultimately, he says, we have to stand for the truth. We have to clarify the gospel. He says in verse 14, when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, then I rebuked them. He understands, as we read in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 5, Paul writing to this church that he has helped establish, who that, that has all kinds of problems. Right? Anybody that says we should base our church around a model that looks like the church there in Corinth, ask them, what do you mean by that? Should we base it around Paul's correction and this is what we should be doing? Don't base it on what they were doing because what they were doing was horrible. And so Paul is addressing these letters there to, to this church in Corinth that, that's struggling. Uh, and he says, would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, I need you to, to, to indulge me for a minute. Let me, let me say this thing that maybe is hard for you to hear, but you need to hear it anyway. Verse 2, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Right? He says, listen, we established this church. This is a church that is uh, for Jesus Christ. You are part of his bride, the body of Christ. And that's, that's why I set this church up. That's why I would engage in this service to the Lord. Verse 3, but I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, as Eve was tricked by the serpent, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Just in the same way that he's about to ask in chapter 3 of Galatians 3, 1, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, who has tricked you? He says, listen, Corinthians, I'm concerned that you might be duped, that you might be tricked and led away from the simplicity that is in the gospel. 
Righteousness by faith, and that alone, not righteousness by faith plus anything else or righteousness by anything else. Verse 4, for he, if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which you have not received, or another gospel, which we have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Right, you, you might accept that false teaching, that false Jesus, that false gospel. You might put up with it. You might be unwilling to contend and call the person out. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. And Paul goes on to describe some things here, but but he can but to conclude our, our section here in 1 Corinthians. He understands that I am on equal footing with all the other apostles. We talked about this to some degree, right? That he is not somehow subject to Peter, as the Catholic Church would teach, that Peter, in fact, in this instance, not only do we see James being the chief of the church in Jerusalem and sending people that he would fear and and have poor motivations there, but we don't find him in any way, shape, or form correcting or rebuking Paul. The authority structure that exists is that which exists from God, and when those apostles ended, that, that ended. Peter is not the head of the church. Paul's motivation is simply to clarify the truth of the gospel and to prevent those who would be carried away in this hypocrisy to clarify, listen, you don't have to follow after. Peter's not endorsing. He doesn't even understand what he's doing. Don't follow that example. Don't be beguiled. Don't be tricked. Now, in Paul's authority, uh, just a quick word there in Second Peter. Second Peter, there. If you listen, we're going to spend a lot of time on Paul's authority here, or Peter's authority. I've already said enough. But if you go read commentaries, people are going to talk about that. They're going to talk about the, the position of the Catholic Church in regard to Peter, and they're going to use this as an example of that being a false argument. And it's correct, and it's right. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, uh, he, he says, We also have a more sure word of—and this is Peter writing— We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place unto the day dawn and the day star arising in your hearts. Knowing this, right? so this more sure word of prophecy, this more sure word of God that has been given to us, knowing this, first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. God himself inspired those who, who came. He says in verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, in fact, if you read Deuteronomy 18, where God lays out the standards for a prophet, if it is the will of man, if it is the, them speaking out of turn, those guys are supposed to be put to death. They are false prophets. But he continues on, But holy men spake of God as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Which is exactly the same way that we receive the New Testament, uh, the recorded Word of God for us and, and its preservation. Right, 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, that all Scripture is given by inspiration. It is God breathed. It is His very Word that, by the Holy Spirit, was given to these guys to record on our, for our benefit. 
just as the Old Testament was and recorded, though it might have been Moses after the events, there it was given by God. It is just as inspired as the New Testament and it comes on the same plane. Paul's authority is this, that he is writing Galatians. And as you read through the New Testament, there are several instances where Paul indicates that he understands the significance of what he's writing. He understands that this is something that is given by inspiration, that this is in fact the very word of God that is to be instructed and to be used as a basis of doctrinal practice amongst the early church. They understood what was happening. And so Paul's authority is rooted solely and completely in his apostleship and that specific calling of God to that office. He's not under Paul's authority, Peter's authority, or James's authority, or John's authority. He simply is an apostle on equal footing with them. So uh, I bring that up here because there are those who, like I said, would, would put that on its head. And they would establish Peter in a place and a position that leads to false doctrine and false gospel. Um, and so we just need to be aware of that. Um, Paul's motivation is the bigger point. Paul's motivation is simply the clarifying of the gospel. The people wouldn't be duped by any false gospel, whether it's spoken or whether it's just by action. And here in this case, it's Peter's action that is conveying the false truth. So, defending the faith, right? Standing for truth. That's what Paul does here. He says in verse 14, When I saw that they walked not up rightly according to the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Right? We see the hypocrisy there. Peter, it's okay for you to live as a Gentile when there's nobody around, to, to eat with them, to have fellowship, to enjoy all of those benefits of their of relationship with them in the body of Christ. But when there's Jews around, we have to be a Jew. When there are those of the circumcision, when there are those who are coming from elsewhere, we have to be like them. We have to submit to those positions or, or whatever it may be. Why, by your example, do you compel these Gentiles to live as the Jews? In other words, Peter, we've already established that they don't have to follow all the laws of Moses. That's not where our righteousness comes from. Paul rebukes Peter because the gospel is confused by his actions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, I have to keep turning to these because I can't remember which one is which, but this is, Paul says, speaking to the Corinthian church, your glorying is not good. Corinthian church, you have to understand that you're glorying, all these things that you're glorying uh, are fine and well, and they are might be good things, but you're condoning so many other heresies and, uh, and immoral practices. And he says, know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right, that little bit of yeast that we put in the dough makes the entire thing yeasty. It doesn't stay, it, it mixes and spreads. 
in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, we read that God gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, here is Peter and Paul, these two apostles who have been given by God, established in that office for the very specific purpose of perfecting the saints, leaving them with a full body of doctrine and understanding, a consistent practice, as it were, of how we walk with Christ. That they be, not be like children to and fro, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Yet here is Peter, by his example, doing exactly the opposite, causing confusion. Well, we need to do this. This is the truth of the gospel. Well, Peter's over here. This must be the truth of the gospel. Back and forth. Tossed to and fro. Now, he rebukes him publicly because he wants to clarify the truth. The people who have been caught up in this dissimulation, including Barnabas, whoever it may be, need to hear that this is incorrect. They need to be hearing the truth. Paul is here operating in the authority that he has to address Peter, to correct this error. He's specifically fulfilling the role that he has as an apostle. In 1 Timothy... 1 Timothy, as Paul writes to this young man who he's established there as an elder in this church, um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, as he's giving some instruction here uh, about dealing with those who are in authority, uh, he begins in verse 19. He says, Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Right? There are going to be those who will, uh, against somebody who is in authority, bring accusations. They feel uh, misused, they feel misrepresented, whatever it may be. There may be validity in that. If there's validity in that, then we have to understand that that's habitual. That is something that has affected more than just you. And so Paul says, listen, here's a word of caution. If somebody's going to accuse an elder, there needs to be some witnesses we're not discounting that it could be real, but we have to understand the position that they are in that God has called them to. And so he continues on, and he says, "Them that sin rebuke before all, that others may, uh, that others also may fear. Them being those elders, those elders who are speaking false doctrine, those elders who are, by example, leading those leading folks to." just as Peter's doing, those who are abusive to the flock, whatever it may be, whatever the problem is, those need to be rebuked, and they need to be rebuked publicly. The people need to realize that that is wrong. It doesn't matter that somebody in a, is doing it. It is wrong. 
He continues on in verse 21, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one another, one before another, doing nothing by partiality. It doesn't matter who it is, doesn't matter what position of authority they enjoy, we need to preserve the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, what is wrong is wrong, what is right is right. And it doesn't matter if somebody is misapplying it, though they be in a position of authority. Their job specifically, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, is to lead us into truth to help us understand it so that we might be established in it. And if they are misrepresenting that truth, they need to be corrected. There's a growing trend in Christianity to be gentle and kind. Now, we should be gentle and kind. We, we shouldn't be those who run around murdering people with our words and our actions. However, we shouldn't be so gentle and kind that we would tolerate or that we would condone sin or a corruption of truth. I don't have any problem from the pulpit or in conversation naming names and saying that person is teaching false doctrine. And we should be okay with that. I have some growing concerns about some segments of, of especially amongst conservative-minded folks, uh, about some of the places that we, even believers, are going to establish ourselves in understanding and truth. And the reason I say that, in fact, I'll give you, I'll give you two examples that I observed this week. Okay, I might step on toes here. I'm not saying that either of these people... I enjoy what they do. And I think that we can apply 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We can prove all things and we can hold on to that which is good. And we need to reject those things that aren't good. But we need to understand that the source of truth is God's word and that alone. And so what happens is that there are those who have struck upon some truths that are consistent with God's word. Okay, Jordan Peterson is growing in popularity. And there is a lot to learn there. Don't get me wrong but he is not the source of truth. He is not a believer in Jesus Christ, and so therefore, as he comes to the Word of God, though he has a reverence for Scripture, for the Bible, doesn't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit to interpret it. And so if I'm going to say, this is what it is, I need to be comparing everything that he says against the Word of God. I need to be a Berean with what I'm hearing. I think there are some things to learn there for sure. But the Word of God is my standard. Doesn't matter if it's an elder in your church. Doesn't matter if it's this pastor that I hear on the radio. Doesn't matter if, if somebody has endorsed them or they wrote a book or whatever it may be. Right? That's not necessarily consistent with truth. Old uh, J.P. Sears the, the guy with the long red hair, you know, kind of a comedian on YouTube, and, and he's really took a stand and he's become far more conservative. Well, I watched the video that he posted, and it's been several months ago that he posted it, but it, he, he ultimately said, listen, I was wrong about God, and I, you know, we have to admire his position that I would leave atheism and I now believe that God exists. As he continues in that and he begins to explain what he believes and all of those kinds of things, I'm concerned because here's two and a half million 
followers of his YouTube channel who are hearing about all kinds of spirituality. And even though he may have a reverence, as he says, and a respect for the tenets of traditional Christianity, he is not a believer. Yet, what we find is that this embracing of uh, people who have struck upon some biblical truth, that they they have, and because they have a platform, because they they have opportunity, whatever it may be, uh, they they become the the foundation that people build their understanding of what is right and wrong. And it can only ever be as good as their understanding of the Word of God. We experience the same thing in Christianity, where the guy on the radio who, you know, he went to seminary or, or whatever it may be, doesn't mean that he understands or knows the Word of God. Doesn't necessarily mean that just because they name the name of Christ, that they're even believers in Jesus Christ. Right? When we talked about and studied through and, and kind of looked at biblical literacy, we found some alarming trends in that most people who graduate from seminary leave seminary believing less of the Bible than they did when they went into seminary. Not only that, but they've never read the Bible. Most of them, 75 plus percent of them, have never, never read the Bible from cover to cover. Yet those are the guys who were instructed in seminaries that are largely infiltrated by those who are anti-Christian. I mean, when you go to seminary, you're being taught primarily. Now, don't get me wrong. There are good seminaries. But by and large, the seminaries that exist are antagonistic at best to Christianity. And they're going to come out and they're going to I mean, you look at the, the infiltration. Here is Paul saying, hey, Corinthians, I have concerns that there would be those that would come in and that you would be accepting of them, that they would teach different gospels, a different Christ, that they would stand on some other principle, and you would tolerate it? How timely is it for us today in, in the body of Christ? Because that's exactly what is happening. It's exactly what happened by Peter as he stood there and said, well, we're going to have to leave because these other guys... His public rebuke was designed to clarify in the presence of everyone who had been confused by what had just taken place. And we need to understand that as believers, when we, when we stand with people, when we hear and uh, have discussions with people, we need to understand that this, the Word of God, is our foundation that this is what we spend our time knowing, that when we have interactions and we have conversations with people who may be like-minded in many spheres but unknowing of Jesus Christ, that that is where we're standing. When we look at how people interact and their, their, their relationships with another, one another and those things, it isn't because this is how Jordan Peterson says that happens, it's because this is how the Word of God says it happens. I'm hopeful that Jordan Peterson, with his respect for the Word of God and all of those things, I'm hopeful because I think he could be a very powerful instrument in the kingdom. I'm hopeful that he will come to faith. But at this point, he doesn't profess to be a Christian. So here's hoping.
J.P. Sears, I have very little hope that he's ever going to become more than just a spiritual guy. Listen, I laugh at his political commentary. The satire is great. Just don't take any spiritual advice. Right? The Rob Bells, the, the those kind of guys, and, and that's an easy one to pick on because he's been picked on for so long, and deservingly so. He preaches a different gospel. He preaches a gospel that is of works. This is right. You do these things. We have to contend for the faith. Jude chapter 3, when James wanted to write, when, when the author wanted to write to the people about the gospel, about the, the common faith, the fellowship and the enjoyment that we have in Jesus Christ with one another, he said it became needful that I wrote unto you that we would contend for the faith. Because there are those who are coming in, those who are sneaking in, whether they intend to or whether they don't intend to and are just useful pawns of the enemy infiltrating the ranks of Christianity. He says, we have to contend for their faith. We have to recognize the error that is being sown. And just like Paul did, without any fear, without any concern about our reputation, take a stand and a firm stand and name names if necessary. I realize that that's hard, and, and I realize that here we stand and we're like, well, geez, you know, per this is not about conflict resolution. Jesus talked about conflict resolution and addressing interactions personally in Matthew chapter 18. That's all well and good, and that is appropriate. When somebody, when you have something against your brother or they have something against you, it's one-on-one, -on -one and you do everything possible to resolve it amongst yourself first and foremost. Jesus gives very clear instruction there. This is about contending for the faith. There's a difference here. It's not the same thing. And so if you feel like, well, geez, this is pretty heavy-handed and we, we shouldn't be heavy-handed with people personally like that, no, don't be heavy-handed. But if you're having a conversation with somebody and, and there is some error in that conversation, you should be able to put your foot down and say, no, that's wrong. And not only that, you should be able to say, from the Word of God, this is what's right. We have to be able to contend for the faith. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, it says that we need to have a, our speech seasoned with grace. It needs to be seasoned with grace. I'm not saying that even though we may be against somebody, even though we have concerns about somebody, doesn't mean we need to tear them down or... or be belligerent or me. Uh, that, that's, that's not what Paul did to Peter. He just said, hey, there's something going on here that's wrong. We need to have our speech seasoned with grace. I'm not saying that, like I said, that we go around murdering people with our words. In, in, in the, but we stand for the truth. Those who would not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. We address it. Clarity is key. It's very important for you and I. Mixed signals equal mixed gospels. As I said, see, this is here where the order, you know, maybe this could have fit earlier in the, in the whole discussion. Maybe not. Even Barnabas was confused. 
Barnabas, who was in fact one of the guys we find out of the book of Acts, that with Paul withstood and made argument against these Judaizers who would say you had to be circumcised. Right? That, that here is this uh, action of Peter unwittingly leading somebody who is extremely solid in truth because of his de facto, just because by right of him being an apostle, engaging in this, this dissimulate, this hypocrisy, leads somebody who is very solid astray. They chose to walk in legalistic and, and not in the liberty that they had in Christ. And they chose to call unclean and common what God had called pure and precious. You remember in chapter 1 of Galatians where Paul was saying in verse 10, Do I now persuade men or God? Right, that Here they are, by their very actions, they're, they're saying that somehow God got something wrong because what we have already established, what we have clearly understood from, I mean, miraculous revelation on Peter's part, we're having to now say that it is wrong. We have to disregard the truth of God's Word to be actually operate in the thing that we're trying to operate in. Is it a gospel of faith or is it a gospel of works? We're going to talk a lot about the gospel, and so when I when I say the truth here, realize that it encapsulates all of it. But we're not going to spend because I don't want to. I don't want to do like we did in Hosea, where we talk about how God is chastening Israel over and over and over for like twelve chapters, and then I mean it was all good, but I got a, it got a little old for me, and I was the guy up here, not the person out there. So I understand. Okay, so so I'm reserving some tenets and practices, some things of the gospel that we're going to get to uh, as we progress through the book of Galatians. But there's a couple of truths that I want to look at this morning that are very pertinent to what's happening here. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ah, that's a long section, okay? So we may not read the whole thing, but beginning in verse 11, he says, Wherefore remember that you being in time past Gentiles, Ephesians were Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by them, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand. So Gentiles and Jews, circumcision and uncircumcision, that's what it represents. The circumcision are the Jews, the uncircumcision are the Gentiles, just to make that very clear. That's why they're capitalized. Verse 12, that at, a, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, but you were separated from them, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right. Here are the Gentiles. You remember that Paul uh, in Romans, I think it was chapter 9, maybe it was chapter 11, he says, listen, why? what benefit is there to being a Jew if all the things that we used to practice don't equal righteousness for us? And he says, listen, everything, and chiefly because they have the oracles of God, because they receive the word of God, because they have his revelation of all that he was promising. Now, they just sort of missed the point in many respects. They didn't realize that God was making them an example for our understanding going forward. They missed the fact that the law was never designed to be the method of righteousness, but their faith, like Abraham, was to be counted to them as righteousness. 
So they are outside of that. All of the promises that are made to Abraham being made both to Jews and Gentiles, that all nations will through him be blessed. Looking forward to the promise of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh. You're brought into the commonwealth of Israel. You're brought adopted into that family, as it were, by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he is our peace who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Right? There's no longer any division. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. In the body of Christ, there is simply the body of Christ. Those who are born again believers in Jesus Christ and everyone else who isn't. That's all that exists. There's no difference. There is no class or caste sort of set up in the body of Christ. They are all believers in Jesus Christ. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the, the us being enemies, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Right? As we look at the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we are, as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, John 1.11. We are brought into the family of God, we are brought into the family of God on equal standing with every other believer. And so here is Peter, Enjoying fellowship, because that's exactly what was happening, enjoying fellowship with these Gentile believers in Antioch. Yet when these Jews come, he's caught up in this concern about being acceptable and proprietous, and, you know, oh, this is what we do in Jerusalem, but that's not what we do here. And he re-erects this wall of partition between them. That you're a Gentile. You're not circumcised. You're not part of the nation of Israel. Therefore, we don't enjoy fellowship. I'm going to have to go have fellowship with these Jews in the way that Jews have fellowship with one another in Christ. In Ephesians 3, verse 6, he says, The Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. We are just as in right relationship with God as any other believer might be. He's not a respecter of persons. You remember in Acts chapter 10, as, as Paul, excuse me, as Peter is receiving his instruction, this revelation from God the Father about the Gentiles and all of those things. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35, he says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Right? In every nation, and, and just to clarify, when, when Jesus was asked, what are the works that we have to do? Jesus said, believe in him who God has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. That is the work. That is the faith that we exercise. And so when we look at this work here, this this work of righteousness, it isn't something that we're doing. It isn't those things that, that make us acceptable. It is simply a reference to faith. Peter says, listen, in every nation, every nation, he that fears him and believes in Christ 
are one and the same. God's not a respecter of people. He doesn't care what nationality we are. He doesn't matter what ethnicity we might be. He doesn't matter what the color of our skin might be. He doesn't matter. None of those things matter. We are people created in his image that he has purposed to save so that we might bring him glory and honor. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for there's a power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew and to the Gentile. So we look at the truth, this escaping of self-righteousness. It applies to everyone. Right? We Paul writes about those uh, Gentiles in, in Romans chapter, I forget the chapter. Might be in chapter two, even. Might be chapter one. Early in the book of Romans, Paul writes about the Gentiles who, without knowing better, do those things that are right. Right? They've happened upon the truth. The conscience that God has put within them instructs them that, listen, to murder is sin. To lie is sin. The fornication is sin. And always has been since the very beginning, before the, the law was recorded for us, when Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, that was sin. It didn't become sin when God wrote it down. It was always wrong because it was always wrong. And God had written that upon their hearts. Cain chose to sin. He chose to commit murder, doing that which his conscience would have clearly told him, nope, that's wrong. And so there are those throughout the world who will encounter that we might encounter who are quote unquote good people. They live a life that is similar and, and looks a lot like ours. But it doesn't mean that they have entered into the body of Christ necessarily. They are still in bondage, as it were, to self-righteousness. And when we get right down to it, the reason that we do these things and not those things, the reason that we do what we consider to be right, that our conscience tells us is right, is because when we get right down to it, if we're extremely honest, it's because we want to be acceptable. I want to stand before God, and when I do, and I'm being judged, that all of these things look good for me. I did that which I should have done. It was good for me to not murder my neighbor. It was good for me not to commit adultery. It was good for me to be honest and not lie. And those things are good. But good people, as I've said before, are not saved people. They are stuck. They are in that bondage of self-righteousness. They don't have the freedom to do those things as a reciprocation of love. Now, when we talk about liberty, when we talk about uh, the freedom that we enjoy in Christ, what is at issue is justification. What is at issue is justification. So you and I in Jesus Christ, and, and this is, people will try to stump us with this question, right? People will try to stump us with this question. They'll say, well, listen, if you uh, accept Jesus Christ, right, you're truly and sincerely born again. And then you go out and murder your neighbor, or you do all of these things that, that might be sinful, or other way around, you've done all these things that are sinful, and then you believe in Jesus Christ. Why should God forgive you? You're a sinner. You've done, well, that, that's kind of exactly the point, right? 
Now, you and I know that we would never go out and do those things after we've been born again. That, that would be so far from us. But it's not about how we are living. Paul is here addressing how we obtain righteousness. He's talking about justification, the declaration of God that we are, in fact, righteous because of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about justification, it has nothing to do with how we live or conduct ourselves. Right? We're going to talk about that in just a minute, so let that alarming thought in your mind just rest for a second. It doesn't matter how I live in Christ. And I say that just to be provocative, because we understand that it does. And we're going to talk about that, okay? We are justified. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he continues on and he discusses justification. We are justified, he says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. This declaration, right? it's witnessed by, it's confirmed by, what, what God is intending to do to remain just, yet justify all people, declare them to be sinless because of the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ, is witnessed by the law and the prophets, by the Old Testament. That's what he's telling us about. We have creation, we have the fall, and then we have the rest of the Bible telling us about God's redemptive purpose, his desire and ability and provision to save mankind. To punish sin, not condone it, and to justify all who would believe in Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, Philippians 3, 9. Here is Paul, and he's uh, talking about having confidence in the flesh. right? The, the having confidence in my self-righteousness, in my ability to, to be acceptable before God because of the righteousness, the works that I have maintained. And he talks about his own history, right? I'm a Jew, I've been circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, so on and so forth, Pharisee, concerning zeal, my, my desire to serve God. I went about killing those Christians who I thought were against God, so on and so forth, right? I was self-righteous. If anyone can have confidence in the flesh, Paul said, I all the more. And this is what he concludes. He says, hey, I count everything in verse 8. I count everything as lost. All of that righteousness that I had, all of those filthy rags of righteousness that meant nothing to God, but I thought were really good. Not that serving God, being zealous for him, not that being circumcised the eighth day was wrong. Not that any of those things that Paul was discussing were, were in and of themselves sinful. They were all actions that he made trying to be quote-unquote good. He was a good person. He says, I count all of that as loss. It's all junk. It's all garbage. It's dung, he says. It's manure. It is worthless compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And he says in verse nine, I want to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, not my self-righteousness, because that is worthless, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. What Paul takes issue with with Peter is his corruption of the understanding of justification. Peter, it isn't that we have to maintain these works. We already settled that. It's not about circumcision. It's not about keeping separation and not mixing with the wrong people. These Gentiles, Peter, we understand that. Our justification is declared by God. Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith. He says in verses 16 and 17, of Galatians chapter 3, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. In other words, that's not how we obtain our righteousness. We understand that. But, as the, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Even we. Now, he's talking about Peter and Paul, right? Peter, Paul, P Peter, we have believed in Jesus Christ. We understand that that is how we were justified. That's how we were made righteous. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. We, we sometimes, we, we look at this and we understand what it says, but sometimes we miss the stinging rebuke that Peter is here receiving. Peter, you know better because you yourself are not justified by the works of the law. You couldn't keep them. You knew you couldn't keep them. You believed in Jesus Christ. That's how you were saved. You know this, Peter. You know better. And here's the thing. We know better as well. Those of us who have been born again, we understand that it was nothing that we brought to the table. It wasn't what we engaged in or how we acted or conducted ourselves that made us right before God. It was His Son, Jesus Christ, being the substitution, the propitiation for our sins, Him being made sin so that we could be made his righteousness. He says at the end of verse 16, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Whether we're found to be sinners, as Peter perceived that he would be by these Judaizers who have come in and say, we got to keep this main, maintain the separation between Jews and Gentiles, or those who would say that we have to be circumcised, or anyone who would say you have to keep any law or right or, or anything, ordinance, to be righteous. Right? If we're deemed because we don't do those things, sinners, is Jesus the minister of sin? Is he instructing us to sin? God forbid. It's a rhetorical question. If we, while we are seeking to be justified by Christ, because that's where our faith is placed, and we fail and we find ourselves in sin, is Jesus instructing us or commanding us to commit that sin? God forbid. That's not what he's teaching us. These that were there were condemning the saints because they didn't practice the same Mosaic ordinances. 
And whether it was intentional or not, the gospel that they were preaching was one that added works to righteousness. Now, we engage with people on a regular basis, our Mormon friends and neighbors, our, our even Catholics, all other religions are works-based. Christianity alone is settled and finished upon the cross by Jesus Christ. Right? If we're, if we're Mormons, we have to be baptized, we have to perform temple ordinances and rites. There are certain things that are required of us to be, quote-unquote, righteous. Right, we have. Uh, I remember as a young man, and you you would go get your temple, or uh, I forget what it's called. Basically, it's a pass to get to the temple, and you have to go be interviewed. Right, and everybody lied. Why? Because we are not righteous. And I know everybody lied because on the way, you know, in the car on the way there, we're all thinking about how we lied. But we, in fact, were not righteous enough to be there doing the thing that they deemed us to be, quote unquote, righteous enough to do. Temple recommend, that's what it's called. It's your temple ticket. They were looking to preserve some righteousness, right? We, this, is, this thing over here is holy. We're coming into God's presence. Whatever, you know, that's the way they view and understand their temples to be. So therefore, we preserve some semblance of standard of righteousness for you to get in. And it's not based upon our faith in Jesus Christ. It was based upon the things that I did. It was works of righteousness, not righteousness by justification. If I'm a Catholic, there are certain things that I must do. I have to trust in a mediator between myself and God, possibly the Virgin Mary, some other means, even though the Bible tells me that the only mediator between God and man is Jesus Christ. There are some other works that I engage in to be found righteous. And ultimately, they're specifically counting upon those works to get them into heaven. Every other religion is the same. Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, it's all the same. It's all works-based. And if our standard, our conducting of the way that we, of life, is different than their standard of righteousness, they're going to look at us and say, you are unrighteous. Right? You're not deserving. You, you know, the, the, the Buddhists would say, well, you're not, you're not uh, enlightened. The, the, the Hindus would say, you know, you eat meat and that's forbidden. And there are these works of righteousness. In Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33, I hope nobody feels like I pick on our Mormon friends and neighbors. I'm trying in my, to equip us to better reach them, to understand enough where they stand and the hopelessness that they are in, so that we might better share the gospel with them. If you're not a believer in our area, you're probably Mormon or Catholic. Those are the people that we're evangelizing. Those are the people that we're sharing the faith with. So we need to have some understanding 
and equipping to be able to reach them. We go somewhere else and it might be different. We might have a whole different audience. The truth of the gospel doesn't change, but some sometimes the method or the means that we use to get to the gospel might. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? Okay, so it was not in Romans 2, it was in Romans 9. Just making that clear. Right here are the Gentiles. They didn't follow after righteousness, they didn't have the law of Moses, yet they did those things that were considered righteous, that were good. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Right, you guys couldn't do it, Israel. Not only that, but he's making the distinction, be, wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So here are the Gentiles. They've been saved. They've been born again. They, they believed in Jesus Christ. They have exercised faith. Yet here is Israel, God's people, his example people that he has had relationship with for thousands of years who have missed the mark because their righteousness is tied up in how they're living, how they conduct themselves, eating the right foods, not eating the wrong foods, not walking too far on the Sabbath. All of these things that they've done and tied their righteousness up in them. And they stumble at the simplicity of Jesus Christ. Verse 33, as it is written, behold, and he quotes here uh, <clears throat> from the Old Testament, behold, I lay in Zion, day 28, I lay in Zion, stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. So for you and I, I can safely say, for you and I who are in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how we live. In regard to our righteousness, it doesn't matter how we live. And when those would come along, they would say, this is how we have to maintain, quote-unquote, righteousness, because that's what Peter is saying by his actions. That's what the Judaizers are saying by, by saying we have to keep this separation from the Gentiles, by saying that we have to be circumcised, by saying that we have to go to church on a particular day, by saying that we have to read our Bible three hours and 12 minutes every Wednesday, or, or whatever it is, as silly as it may seem, those things don't matter for righteousness sake. Paul talks in uh, verse 18. He says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He's making the case, the distinction between self-righteousness versus those who are justified, who are declared by God to be righteous. He argued uh, against reestablishment of the law for a means of righteousness. We already read Romans chapter 3. 19 through 23, right? That we are not justified that. That was not what it was designed for. The purpose of the law was never to save us. And we're going to develop that thought as we progress through our study of Galatians because Paul balances, as it were, this relationship between the law and our justification. But the law wasn't intended for us to keep. It was intended to instruct us of our need for Jesus Christ. We are not capable to be righteous even in the least. We are conceived in sin, 
We are born in the image of Adam, which is fallen and corrupt. We talked about that on Easter, right? This is where we stand, separated, enemies of God from the moment of conception. Yet God, in his infinite knowledge, knew all of that was going to happen, created us anyway, and then sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about this inability to be redeemed in and of ourselves. He says in Romans 7, 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in who I am naturally, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Right? I want to do good things. I want to be a quote-unquote good person, but I can't be. There is no good thing within me. There is nothing redeemable that I could even merit favor with God as a result. And he continues, if you jump down with me in, uh, to verses 24 and 25 in Romans chapter 7, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. This exclamation point, right? This is a declaration of Paul, of his understanding, of his inability to keep, and our inability to keep any standard of righteousness. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to redeem me? Who's going to save me is Paul's question. And he answers it in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. In other words, he says, listen, I am declared righteous, even though I might commit sin. Even though somebody may say, look, you've blown it, you've committed sin, you stole, you, you, you murdered, whatever it may be, it is in fact sin. But it doesn't change our standing, our justification with Christ. We don't rebuild those things that are torn down, which is, by example, what Peter is doing. We stand firm in the liberty that we have in Christ. Only a few more verses here this morning. He says in verses 19 through 21, For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Paul says, listen, we're not building those things again, those things of bondage where we have to earn our righteousness with God nor maintain it or anything along those lines. He says those things are torn down. We're going to leave them torn down. We are completely at liberty. We have the freedom to be declared righteous by God, to exist in that righteousness, and now to honor him in what we do. Because there's a change of motive. Right, I said earlier that those of us that, that, that in the past, when we said, listen, I'm going to do these good things, these things that are considered to be right, that the old underlying ultimate motive of any of that is simply to be acceptable before God, to stand in judgment with something that I can stack up in defense of myself. And if we get right down to it, people may not articulate it in that way, but that's ultimately where it comes from and that's where it goes. 
And as we have those conversations, right, what is the standard of righteousness? What is the standard of what you call good or right? are great questions to ask because that pushes them to get to something outside of themselves, right? Some judge, some standard of righteousness that is outside of themselves, which is the righteousness, the standard that God has established, equal to his, which we can't do. But hey, here's some good news. Jesus was made sin. He was considered sin. He received the punishment for sin so that you could be given the exact righteousness that is required. And even better, it isn't about all these things that you just tried to tell me were quote-unquote good things. Right? My motivation is completely changed. No longer am I doing these things simply to try and merit or earn favor with God. Now I'm doing these things to honor Him. Which is what we were created for in Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, for thy pleasure they are and were created. That is our chief end. That is what we were put here for. We are no longer bound to earn salvation. We are free to serve God, not out of merit, but out of love. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He doesn't say, if you want to be righteous, keep my commandments. If you want to be acceptable, if you want to somehow enter into my favor and grace, Jesus didn't say there is one way to the Father, and it's by keeping the commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. So when I say that it is not important for us as believers to the, the, the way that we live doesn't matter. It's only in the context of justification, of being righteous before God. It does, in fact, matter how we live. Here is Peter, and he's living in a way that is very important to God because it is confusing the gospel. It isn't enough. It isn't enough that we would believe it. We have to live it. The outward reflection of a sincere response to the gospel of Jesus Christ will confirm and entice its truth and saving power to the world around us. We are living ambassadors, living epistles, that which the world sees, and as we identify with Christ, they understand the gospel that is presented for us. Turn with me to the book of Titus as we conclude this morning. Titus chapter 1. Verse 16. Now remember, these, Paul, these words are all written by Paul. His motivation has consistently been throughout the book of Galatians and continues through the rest of the New Testament to be to confirm and authenticate and clarify the gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And he says in Titus 1.16, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Okay, here he is. He's talking about a particular group of people, and I realize that we're just grabbing this uh, verse out of context. But, but in the context that we're discussing it, and we're making application with it, we see that there is a way that we can live. I'm not taking it out of context per se, but, but I'm just saying we're not looking at the context. <laughs> the I see some concerned looks. Good. I should see concerned looks when we take things out of context. And when I say that we're taking it out of context, we should all, yes. What he's saying is that there's a way that we can live that would misrepresent truth. 
that the way that we conduct ourselves, the why we live life, the things that we do or the things that we don't do can misrepresent truth. That these people who are being described here profess, they say, I know Jesus Christ, but the way they conduct themselves denies that very fact. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of Jesus Christ, says, who gave himself for us, why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify into himself a peculiar people. Right? We like that peculiar part so much at our house. We got the sign. We used to have the sign. I don't know where. We still have the sign somewhere, but I don't think it's up anymore. Things change on the walls, you know, and I'm not privy unless I pay attention. It says, stay weird because we are a peculiar people. We are set apart. We are established to be different. And there's a purpose for that. It's a witness to the world around us. It says that we should be zealous of good works. Just as Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, listen, you are a city that's set on a hill, and you can't hide it. I mean, you can see it for miles around. And that God didn't save us for the purpose of hiding us under a bushel and keeping us silent. No, he saved us so we might bring him honor and glory, that we might represent him, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as his ambassadors. Therefore, he says, let your good works shine before men, that they may see those good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In other words, and just as he's saying here, those, the, those good works that we hold, those peculiarities that we might engage in or not engage in, become a manifestation, a witness to the world around us of the authenticity of the gospel. So there's the way that we can live that would corrupt the gospel. There's a purpose for which God has saved us, and that's to be his witnesses, to bring him honor and glory. And he says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, But after that the kindness and love of, of God, our Savior, toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that's very good news. And it's not by works, it's completely by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. Titus, as a young pastor, these are things that you need to be talking about. First off, justification comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ and faith in his substitutionary death. That alone. It's not by works of righteousness. Continue to contend for the faith, he says. And he goes on, he says, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. One of the things, Titus, that I want you to talk with people about is that we would manifest, that we would maintain, that we would do those things that are good and right so that people might see it. These things are good and profitable unto men. They're good and profitable unto men. Now, as we're going to find as we continue through our study in Galatians, there may be differences, right? There may be those meat sacrifice to idols sort of discussions where, uh, I was talking about one this morning with, with Jessica. For some people, yoga is taboo, right? And, and there is sort of an underlying spiritual connotation that comes with it. But all they did in the past was strike upon some truths of God's creation and put them into a movement pattern so that we might reap some benefit from it, right? If I stretch, 
you, you practice yoga. Somehow, you know, I mean, it's a meat sacrificed idol. For some people, it might be acceptable. Some people, it might not be. Uh, I don't want to stumble anybody, but I, I, there it is, right? It's an example. If it's sin for you, then let it be sin and just don't engage in it. Fine. If it isn't for you and you want to engage in it, fine, but don't stumble your brother. Right? We maintain these good works not as a means of righteousness, but but it, it is something that we have liberty in, and it may look different slightly for you than it does for me. We get to live those things out. We may have different standards of modesty or the way that we choose to dress or not dress. I mean, my family has evolved in that over the last 15 years dramatically. Not that one was better or uh, or more righteous or better representative than any of the others. But what I don't want to do is lay some obstacle to anybody coming to the faith in the way that I conduct myself. And some of the examples that I've given in the past are choosing to use the King James Bible. When I visit with people who, uh, who are Mormon, that's just one less thing to overcome. Choosing not to drink alcohol because it's just one more thing to overcome. For them, it's a standard of righteousness. For me, is there perfect liberty in it? Absolutely. Could you? Sure. The only thing we got to avoid is, according to Scripture, is drunkenness. But there is even benefit. I mean, Paul tells Timothy, listen, don't drink just water, bud. You're going to need to take a little wine. It's going to be medicinal for your stomach condition. Right? We understand that there are some benefits associated with it. I choose not to. Because I want my good works to be consistent to those who are witnessing them. Paul said, as we, we looked at last week, to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Gentiles I became a Gentile, to those who were weak I became weak, to those who were poor I became poor. He did those things so that there was not an additional obstacle for them to overcome the gospel, that they might understand it in the context that they were living in. Not that the gospel changed, but the presentation of it was made conformable and understandable to the audience. We need to be careful how we live. We have friends who have just moved across the country, and as they get over there, they're going to encounter a completely different culture. Though it's still in the same country, it's a different culture. There's going to be a learning process about how they might engage with people around them, what might be acceptable, might be unacceptable. The quote-unquote good works that they're going to engage in, the peculiarities that they take upon themselves or choose to put off as a result of trying to honor the Lord might be different than we have here in southern Idaho. And it isn't to say that one is right or wrong or better. We have liberty in Christ to become all things to all men so that we might win some. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity you've put before us to be in your word. Lord, I thank you for the examples that we see here of both Peter and Paul. That, Lord, though we might uh, sometimes not represent you well, God, that there would be those who would rebuke and correct us. That as your word says, as we engage in fellowship, Lord, that you would, that we would take the opportunity to provoke to love and good works. And I pray, Lord, that we could be like Paul, who was un, unashamed to stand for truth, to do so boldly, even at the risk of potentially causing offense. 
Lord, we thank you for those examples. We thank you for the clarity of your word and the simplicity of your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that we are not saved by any works that we might contribute or anything that we bring to the table, but simply and wholly through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because we all know, Lord, that within us there is no good thing. Oh, wretched people that we are, we thank you that you saved us by the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and that alone. Give us your grace, Lord, that we might represent you well, that we might evaluate where we stand and the things that we put out there, the, the, the outward expression of our faith, Lord. I pray that it would be consistent and understandable to the audience that we have. We thank you, Lord, for the liberty that we have in Christ. And I pray that we wouldn't be entangled again with any yokes of bondage, with, a, with any odd works or those kinds of things. But Lord, that we might stand free to serve you and to honor you in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, we ask this, Lord, and that we give thanks. Amen.